and welcome to True Crime Cam, a true crime podcast hosted by me, Cam. So this week's episode is going to be a little different, but stick with me because I think y'all are going to want more of these. We're going to be looking at the true stories of spine-tingling encounters posted on a very popular Reddit sub that you may have heard of, r slash let's not meet. Let's Not Meet was created in 2011 and now has over 1 million members. Instead of scrolling for hours looking for the scariest ones, I'm bringing them right to your eardrums. Alright, let's get into it. This first story comes from user Scars and Stripes, and it's titled, Roommate Wanted, Female Only. This is a popular story with my family and most of my friends. Amanda is my brother's girlfriend. At the time of this story, she was looking for her first apartment and moving out from her parents' house. Her and my brother didn't want to move in together since they only had dated for a few months. She opted instead to search for a roommate online. Browsing Craigslist, she found an ad titled something like, Roommate Wanted, Female Only. This sort of thing was common since the area she was looking in was mostly young professionals. The listing was for a room in a house for about $225 a month, which was quite cheap compared to most places listed. The occupant listed herself as a 23-year-old college student that wasn't comfortable living with any other males. The other roommate would have their own room and an attached bathroom. So far, Amanda was into this place. However, the listing only had a single photo from outside the property. Amanda sent an email wanting to meet the occupant and tour the house. Within 30 minutes, she receives an email back, with all the details and a time to stop by. The girl worked late hours and wanted Amanda to stop by at 8pm. When Amanda arrives, there is a handwritten note on the front door saying, Door broken. Use back door. Walking around the house, it looks nice, but slightly unkept. Tall grass, weeds, dusty windows, etc. Still no alarms for Amanda, though. When she knocks on the back door, an older man opens the door. At first, Amanda thinks she has the wrong house, but the man reassures her and says that the occupant was out, and he was the landlord. The occupant asked him to meet Amanda since she was working late. He seemed pleasant and offered to show her around. Alarms started going off but aren't at red alert yet. First, The guy was clearly in his 40s, unshaven, and looked like he lived in his car. Also, only the kitchen light was on. As they walked around the house, Amanda noticed one huge red flag. No furniture. Nothing. The landlord was polite about answering questions, but seemed irritable to keeping lights on for too long, rushing her around, and only letting her look at rooms for a few moments. There was a single room that the landlord wouldn't open telling her that it was the occupant's room, and he didn't want to invade her privacy. As they walked down the hallway into the living room, she notices the front door has a plank nailed across it. Quote, broken, for sure. Amanda's creepometer is starting to ding, so she decides to wrap up the walkthrough and leave, but trying to be polite. As she's giving the guy her thanks-for-the-showing bit, he perks up and states that he forgot to show her the basement. It's recently furnished and would be a great recreation room, and she should take a look down there. At that time, Amanda and the landlord are standing in the small hallway between the front living room 
in the back kitchen. In this little hallway was the basement door. When he opens the door, it opens outward to create something of a barrier between Amanda and the back door. The basement is pitch black. He smiles, motions down the stairs, and says, Ladies first. What happens next is nothing more than a stroke of luck. Amanda gets a text, just as some random person parks in front of the house. Thinking on her feet, she pretends it's a phone call and answers her phone. Quote, hey, yeah, are you here? I'll come out from around back and let you in. It's great, you have to see it. With a motion of confidence, she excuses herself around the landlord and walks out of the back door. She says the guy just looked at her like he was confused. Once outside, she sprinted to her car and sped like hell out of there. When Amanda got home, she told her mother and my brother everything. Cops were called, they took her statement, and went to investigate. The Craigslist post had been removed. The house had been foreclosed over six months earlier, and the property had been abandoned. When the police investigated, they found that the closed room the quote-unquote landlord didn't want her to look in was where the man had been staying. There was a pile of old dirty blankets, rotten food, and empty gallon jugs everywhere. More creepy was he had plastered, ripped-up pages from porno mags all over the walls in his room. The really scary part of this was the basement. The man had tied a thin piece of fishing twine at about shin level across the stairs, about halfway down. The basement was empty, except another pile of old blankets, a broom handle-wrapped in leather belts, and a small box with a few rolls of assorted tape, duct, electric, etc. This second story comes from user Neon underscore Pikachu, and this is a verified story. It's titled, I Survived a Mass Shooting at a Movie Theater. This happened to me four years ago. It's by far the most extreme and life-threatening situation I've been in. The eyewitness account you're about to read is 100% true and is mine. For some understanding, this happened in the United States. It was the summer of 2012. My longtime boyfriend and I had recently gotten married. Even though we were dirt-poor college students and lived in a dinky apartment, we were having a blast. That particular summer, we gathered with all our friends at the local movie theater almost every weekend. There was one just down the street from our apartment that had really cheap movie tickets. A night out that was under $10 was certainly within our budget. Anyway, one Thursday night, I receive a call from this group of friends inviting us to watch the midnight premiere of the newest Batman movie. I had just finished working a 12-hour shift and was pretty tired. I almost refused the invitation and thought of crashing in my apartment instead. However, I didn't want to miss out on the fun, and it was a movie I'd wanted to see for a while anyway. Certainly, it wouldn't do any harm to stay up later than usual and miss a few hours of sleep, right? At 10.30pm, we met at the theater. We passed large cardboard cutouts of Catwoman and Batman as we walked inside. Greeted by the smell of buttery popcorn, and the chatter of excited moviegoers. The ticket booth was to the right of the entrance, and just above that was an electronic list of movies being played. The 12 a.m. showing of The Dark Knight Rises was displayed up there in bright red letters. 
Being paranoid that the tickets would sell out quickly, one of my friends swung by earlier that day and purchased tickets for all of us. We bypassed the ticket line and went straight to the ticket taker. She smiled at us and kindly directed us to Theater 9, which was on the right side of the lobby. If I had only known what I do now, that among the crowds, a killer was lurking. That as I walked across that tacky red and purple carpet towards Theater 9, I could have been walking to my death. I think about it often now. What I would have done had I known. Pulled the fire alarm, called the police, screamed for people to run away. But of course, I had no way of knowing what was about to happen. Oblivious to the peril I was putting myself in, I pushed open the doors for Theater 9 without giving it a second thought. The hallway in this theater was shaped like a U, and you could either go left or right. Theater 9 was the largest screening room in the building, perfect for accommodating the crowds that midnight premieres brought in. The screen was motionless and gray, not even the previews had started yet, because there was still a good hour and a half to go until the movie actually started. We entered on the right side, so all of the seats were to our left. I remember being surprised at just how packed the theater already was. Just about every seat was filled. At first it seemed like we wouldn't find a spot to sit together. Now the way this theater was set up, there was a section of seats right in front of the screen. This area was flat, and there were about five rows of seating in this section. A lot of seats in that section were empty, but sitting right in the front of the movie screen sucks, and none of us wanted to sit there. One of my friends then spotted a row with five empty seats all next to each other, perfect for the amount of people we had. These seats were about three to four rows up from where the seating rows start to elevate. We ran up the stairs before someone could take the seats and filed in. My husband, Brock, sat in the fifth seat. I sat next to him. And my friend, Samantha, sat next to me on my right side. Her boyfriend, Tommy, sat next to her. And another friend named Leo sat in the aisle seat. We spent the next several minutes casually chatting, joking around, and laughing. After a while, my three friends went to the lobby to buy drinks, and that addicting movie theater popcorn. While they were gone, Brock and I passed the time by people watching. The theater was bright since the lights weren't dimmed yet, and I could see everyone clearly. There were a lot of people dressed in Batman t-shirts and hoodies. One person even had a mask, and one of those shirts with an attached cape. There were a lot of kids in attendance as well, which wasn't surprising because even though it was a Thursday night, it was summer vacation, so that meant no school the next day. Of all the people I saw, the person I will never forget was the little girl sitting in our same row a few chairs away. She was really cute, blonde with blue eyes, and passed us several times on her way to the lobby, each time coming back with various snacks and popcorn. Overall, people seemed very excited to see the movie, and the room was filled with energy and laughter. After what seemed like an eternity of waiting, the lights started to dim, and the previews began. Just like every movie I've seen before, a quick animation flashed across the screen, reminding us to get refreshments from the lobby, to silence our cell phones, and to make sure we know where the emergency exits are. The animation had this ugly CGI cat in a tuxedo, that was sitting in a movie theater. I casually glanced at the bright green emergency exit signs that were on the left and right sides of the movie screen. I didn't think much of the reminder, like usual. After that, I only remember one preview for The Man of Steel. The others, I'm not sure what they were about. 
When the movie started, the theater erupted into cheering and clapping. The title of the movie, The Dark Knight Rises, exploded onto the screen. Only when the movie started to get a little less interesting did I remember just how tired I was. I decided I would close my eyes at the more boring parts to get a little bit of rest. I had been awake for 20 hours at that point, so I was rightfully sleepy. Anyway, when I opened my eyes again, Bruce Wayne was on his computer digging up information on Catwoman. And this is the last scene I saw. I never got to watch the rest of the movie. All of a sudden, a loud bang erupted from the left side of the theater. I sort of screamed a little because it startled me. A strange smell started to fill the auditorium. It was like the smell of a firework, so I thought it was a cherry bomb or something similar. Had someone thrown fireworks into the crowd as a prank? Then, down near the right side of the movie screen, the dark silhouette of a person caught my attention. They were just a black frame against the bright movie screen. A series of flashing lights was coming from this person. It was a weird moment where time literally slowed down and everything went strangely quiet. I was completely frozen, unable to move, and really unable to think at all. It was like my brain had stopped working entirely. Brock caught on immediately to what was happening and he grabbed me. He pulled me to the ground and lay on top of me, shielding me with his own body. At this point, time and sound returned to me. I could hear the gunshots ringing out across the theater. People were screaming. The movie was still playing on top of it all, creating a chaotic explosion of sound. I realized the flashing lights I had seen were bullets flying out of a gun barrel. An instant sensation of adrenaline flooded my body. There was absolutely nothing I could do except lay there and hope to God that the bullets I heard ripping through the seats and walls wouldn't go through me too. At one point, shrapnel hit my head, cutting off a good chunk of my hair. And as I reached for the spot to make sure it wasn't bleeding, hot pieces of metal fell into my hand. I was lying face up, so I could see everything that was happening. The lights from a still-playing movie danced across the ceiling and walls. My friends were on the floor with me. Our unfinished bucket of popcorn was spilled all across the floor. Leo had his legs sticking out into the aisle, because there wasn't enough room for him to hide completely behind the seats. At some point, Samantha's water bottle, which had been in the cup holder between our seats, exploded. Water splashed all over my face. The smell of gun smoke was overwhelming. Riot-grade tear gas made me cry and caused me to cough uncontrollably. There was another smell, too. The horrible, metallic smell of blood that I'll never forget. I remember my lower body feeling wet all of a sudden. For some reason, I thought this came from the leaking water bottle, but I soon realized this wasn't the case. All of a sudden, things went strangely quiet. The bullets had stopped for some reason. Tommy shouted, let's get out of here. We took advantage of the opportunity and made a run for it. We ran down the stairs, across the front of the screen towards a bright green exit sign. We crammed into a small, closet-like space where the door was. It was so dark we had a hard time finding it. We were screaming and slamming on the walls to find the door, blinded by the tear gas and dumbfounded by shock. Then, finally, my hands felt the metal door handle, and I pushed against it with all my strength. The door flew open and the light of a nearby streetlight flooded our eyes. 
We pushed against the door so hard that we all fell over onto the concrete. Samantha lost her pink flip-flops just outside the doorway. As I scrambled to my feet and literally ran for my life, I realized my legs were red, absolutely soaked with blood. It was like I dipped my legs into a bathtub full of it. I checked my body all over and realized I wasn't injured at all. Where had this blood come from? I looked behind me and realized that the blood was from my husband. He had been shot in the leg. A massive, gaping hole had ripped through the lower half of Brock's right leg. His foot was barely hanging on and dangled lifelessly. Leo and a young man I didn't recognize were carrying Brock, because after falling outside the door, he lost all of his strength, and he couldn't walk. I was completely shocked. I had no idea he had been injured, especially since he was right behind me the whole time and managed to escape the theater all by himself. How he did it on foot, I'll never know. At this point, I screamed. My scream was so loud that it alerted nearby construction workers. At the back of the theater, there was a narrow parking lot, followed by a grassy lawn, and then the street beyond that. The construction workers were doing road repair on this street, but as soon as they heard my scream and saw us running, they stopped working and watched what was going on. I'm not sure why this is such a vivid part of my memory. Anyway, they carried Brock along the back sidewalk all the way to the end, where the corner of the building is. This was quite a distance, several dozen feet. My husband then collapsed from exhaustion and pain, saying he couldn't move anymore. He lay down, and a puddle of blood started to form beneath him. I looked back and realized we had left a trail of blood leading from the door all the way to our current position. I was trembling. I knelt beside Brock and glanced around to see who else was injured. Tommy had been shot in the knee and the hip, and was further away in the parking lot. The teenager who helped my husband was also injured. His dad and mom were with him. His mom was sitting against the wall and looked like she was going to pass out. She was bleeding from several places. The family escaped at the same time we did. I guess they heard the bullets stop and decided to make a run for it too. We were all lucky because the shooting was still going on inside. I had to take off my shirt and use it to stop the bleeding. I'll never forget how lifeless and limp his leg felt and I imagined that's what a dead body must feel like. I got blood all over my hands and arms. The police showed up really, really fast. I'd say we were only outside for a minute or two before the red and blue sirens filled the night and rushed to our location. We were literally a block away from the police station. A female officer stood by us the whole time until paramedics arrived, which took a very long time. Brock was one of the last to be taken to a hospital. He was bleeding out for almost 20 minutes before an ambulance pulled up on the same street. At this point, he had become almost unresponsive and was on the verge of unconsciousness. Several massive guys rushed across the grass with a stretcher, loaded him onto it, and then ran with him back to the waiting ambulance. I wasn't able to go with him because there was another injured person in the ambulance, and it was too crowded. I wandered around the front of the theater alone, unsure of where my friends had went. My blood-stained shirt and a pool of blood were left behind on the corner of that sidewalk. Walking through the crowds felt like a dream. I couldn't believe what just happened. People were in hysterics and crying. A lot of people such as me were covered in blood, 
and like me, I'm pretty sure the blood staining their skin and clothes wasn't their own. A lot of people seemed to notice how lonely and dazed I was, so they kept me company and even offered me a ride to different hospitals to find Brock, because I hadn't been told what hospital he was taken to. I hung around these people for a while as police swarmed the area and asked us what we saw inside the theater. The whole parking lot was on lockdown, and we weren't going to be allowed to leave anytime soon. It was around 2am, so it was very dark outside still. The flashing red and blue lights of what seemed like a hundred police cars were blinding. I remember seeing a big police vehicle pull up that said something like, Crime Scene Investigation Unit, on it. I think that's when it really sank in and hit me. I started to get sick to my stomach and wanted to vomit, but somehow I was able to hold it back. Eventually, police started letting people leave. I jumped into my truck and booked it out of there. I was in such a panic that I didn't even think to go back to my apartment, grab my cell phone, and call my parents or someone else to help me. I was angry, upset, scared, and most of all, still in a state of shock. Was I really going to lose Brock only a month shy of our first wedding anniversary because of some psychopath with a gun? Thankfully, by the time Don rolled around, I found the hospital he was treated in. This was in the next city over, maybe 45 minutes from the theater if you're going the speed limit. I was so happy to be there, and the hospital staff were all so welcoming and understanding. After making sure I wasn't injured as well, they let me wait in the ICU room that Brock would be placed in when he was done recovering from surgery. I was so glad he was alive. Brock and Tommy both had survived, although many others weren't so lucky. I found out the following day that 12 people were killed in this shooting, and over 70 were injured. The little blonde girl sitting in my row did not survive. She died in the theater no more than a few feet from us. She had been shot multiple times. A heartbroken police officer, who cried during his court testimony, tried unsuccessfully to save her by carrying her out of the theater and having her sent to a hospital. Tommy was rushed to a different hospital in the back of a police car. He underwent surgery and made a full recovery. The bullet missed his hip bone and narrowly missed his urinary tract and bladder. According to the surgeons, my husband lost almost half his blood. Brock made it to the hospital just in time. Any later, and he would have died. He underwent several blood transfusions and was in the hospital for 21 days. The wound to his leg was severe enough that they had to amputate it after trying unsuccessfully to save it. It's been so long since the shooting happened that my husband, friends, and I have been able to recover from it somewhat. The event was pretty horrifying and has left us scarred for sure. I wouldn't consider that part of the story to be creepy, though. No, the creepy part is the shooter himself. I later learned much about him from the murder trial that would follow in the coming years. Though my encounter with this man was very brief, he has affected my life greatly. Just to know that people like this exist is disturbing. He is certainly one twisted individual that I never want to see again. I learned everything from watching the televised trial that took place in early 2015. This guy was going to school for neuroscience or something in California. I guess he was a pretty smart guy. However, for some reason he had an obsession with killing people and had a stalker mentality. After dropping out of his university, he moved to my state and chose my local theater to commit a mass shooting. Before that, 
He was planning on hiding along remote hiking trails up in the mountains, jumping people, pulling them into the woods, and killing them there. Although he never went through with that idea. He stalked my theater for months, and had his shooting all planned out for the night of July 20th. Though I never saw him before this, it's unnerving to think that that guy could have been watching us every time we went to the theater, and we would have never known it. We were completely unaware of what he had planned against us. This completely ruined my sense of security, because who knows what the stranger next to you is planning on doing to you. I came very close to the shooter, but I never actually saw his face in person until I was forced to testify in court. Of course, I saw his mugshots on television, but while in the theater, I only saw him as a dark silhouette in the shadows, like a demonic figure rendered from the darkest and most sinister nightmare. He was even in the hallway that we passed upon running for the emergency exit. The only thing stopping him from killing us there was his jammed assault rifle. To commit this crime, he ordered a few thousand rounds of ammunition, riot gear and armor, tear gas, an assault rifle, and a shotgun. He took pictures of himself, which were shown in court, wearing all of his gear like some sick trophy, and holding up these weapons with a menacing smile. He dyed his hair orange and put in these creepy black contacts while making devilish faces into his camera, something that made me sick just looking at. Before driving to the theater with all of his gear in his car, he booby-trapped his entire apartment and set it to explode if anyone opened the door. Then, once in the theater, he posed as a moviegoer and even bought a ticket for the movie. I think his ticket had Theater 8 on it, which was next door, but Theater 9 had more people in it, so he went into 9 instead. He was in the few front rows. I must have passed him several times in the lobby while he was there. Maybe he had seen me too. At some point during the movie, he got up and went through the side exit, kept it propped open with something, then went to his car to put on all his armor and grabbed his weapons. Then he came back inside and started shooting. When we escaped the theater, we ran past his white car, which was parked right at the exit. We didn't even notice it. At some point he came outside, and he would have seen us there on the concrete. I don't know what stopped him from shooting people that were outside too, but he could have easily ended us there if he wanted to. I think the hardest part for me was facing this twisted individual in court. I'll never forget rising as they called my name, walking down the center row past my family, other survivors, and crowds of news-hungry media personnel. I sat right across from him, maybe only ten feet away. All his orange hair was gone and he wasn't wearing black contacts. Being so close to him was a creepy and uncomfortable experience. I can now say that I've come face to face with a true, deranged psychopath. He just had this blank stare in his eyes the whole time. If eyes truly are the windows to the soul, then his soul was filled with nothing but a cold indifference for those he had murdered and harmed. He wouldn't even look at me. Sitting across from him in a courtroom was the second time I had knowingly been in the same room with this man. A man who had tried to take my life, but thankfully failed. A man who would end up spending forever behind bars, when at the end of it all, he was sentenced to 3,318 years in prison for his crimes. This is the man who tried to kill me, the man who has caused countless nightmares and fueled the fires of my paranoia. The man who hurt my friends and family 
causing years of untold grief for my husband because he will never walk the same again. The man who stole the innocence and joy from a six-year-old child, who went into the theater alive and came out dead. To the man who carried out the worst mass shooting in Colorado history, let's not meet again. Ever. I hope you rot in prison. The third story comes from user Gwenji. It's titled, He Smells Like Garbage. He Knows Where I Sleep. He Wants to Eat Me. I was working at a sports bar in the morning and a big, dirty fellow sat down in my section. He had shoulder-length, wild hair, and dirty, torn clothing. You know, typical loony garb. But I'm a good waitress, I don't plan on treating him any different than any other customer, so I greet him, and I'm instantly hit with the smell of garbage. I grew up neglected slash abused, which is important for a few reasons, some of which come into play later. 1. I know what it's like to be judged, and I empathize and overcompensate when I deal with people I think have also been wrongfully judged. 2. My parents were creepy hoarders, so the smell of garbage, garbage and B.O. together especially, gives me anxiety attacks. 3. Because of the abuse and some other trauma, I have severe PTSD. This sports bar was the last job I was able to hold. Which means I'm always on high alert and hypersensitive to my surroundings and possible threats. I think in terms of defense always, especially concerning my home. So even though the smell of this man was skyrocketing my anxiety, I treated him well. I figured he was down on his luck, he came in on all-you-can-eat taco bar day and stayed for five hours, and I figured he hadn't eaten much lately. Which struck a personal chord with me, because our parents didn't feed us, and we often went days without food. I felt so sorry for him, so I went above and beyond while serving him. He obviously appreciated it, and he left. Nothing unusual. He returned the next week and requested me. This time, he had brought some emails he printed out between him and his ex, and asked me if I could read them and explain some of the things his ex said since I was a girl. I told him I would read it when I wasn't working, which I had no intention of doing, and took him and shoved him in my purse. From the emails, I could see his name was Steve. He later asked what days and shifts I worked, and I lied through my teeth. He started asking other personal questions, too, and I'm used to this. I've been waiting tables for eight years at this point, and dealt with a fair bit of creepers. So I have a whole fabricated life story on deck designed to deter any funny business. Stuff like, my boyfriend is a giant with anger issues, I have noisy neighbors, etc. I remember that the only true thing I ever told him was that my sister worked at Subway, and I accidentally mentioned her name. I remember vividly because I had a very strong gut feeling that I shouldn't say it. I wish I had listened to that feeling. A week later during one of my shifts, Steve came in and he was pissed. He demanded to know why I wasn't working when I said I was. I said I had traded a lot of shifts recently. Steve got super close to me and exclaimed that I better be here next time, and he left. A cook told me he had seen that guy sleeping in his car in the parking lot that morning, and he had seen the same car parked in the lot several times when he left at night. He knows it was the same car because it was filled with trash. Steve came back in after last call and told me he wanted to place an order, but I said it was too late, so he went to the bathroom. I watched for him to leave, and he never did. At this point, I have a panic attack building. I tell the bartender slash manager what's going on, and him and the bouncer find him standing on the toilet in the stall. They drag him out and tell him he can never come back. 
I told my boyfriend, so when he picked me up, he brought two friends, and I discreetly hide my face and disguise myself when I left, checking the mirrors to see if we were being followed. Steve never came back, and I ended up quitting shortly after anyway. Eventually, my boyfriend and I broke up, and I kept our apartment and had my sister move in. A few months later, things took a turn for the worst. I started dating my girlfriend, who was from a small town, and she wanted to take a weekend trip back home. When we got back, one of the window panes was busted in a multiple-paned window, and I asked my sister about it, and she hadn't noticed. She hadn't left the house all weekend, and she didn't hear glass breaking or anything suspicious. This did not feel like a break-in attempt, and the more we thought about it, the scarier it became. 1. We were dead broke. There's nothing you could get any money from inside, and it's evident no matter what window you look in from. Like I said, I think defense. So all the windows have blinds, but there are a few gaps in them from the cats. I have looked through these gaps multiple times to be completely aware of what can and cannot be seen. Also, I put long screws in all window frames so they can't be opened more than four to six inches. Two, the window pane was pried out, not busted in, meaning they knew someone was home and they didn't want to be heard. Three, it was the only night in over a year that I left town. I didn't put it on Facebook, and I only told a few good friends. Neither my sister and I have cars, so you can't look in the driveway and see who's home. The next night, we heard the neighbor's dog barking and growling, and we heard footsteps in the yard. I grabbed the gun, went to the living room next to the yard, and listened, thinking to myself, be smart. Is this two feet or four? And the second I realized it was two, I started flipping the lights on and off rhythmically to make the person think we were signaling our neighbor. That made him leave. Sign four, it wasn't a break-in attempt. You don't return to the house you failed to break into the day before. My sister and I got tasers and wasp spray, because I don't have a permit and my sister won't touch a gun. The rest of the week was quiet and my sister was now armed, so that weekend my girlfriend and I decided to go out. We got in a stupid fight that night, and when she dropped me off, I threw $20 in her car and said something snarky like, here's my half of the tab, and went inside. She noticed when she was a few blocks away, and texted she was going to come give it back, but I told her not to. She knocked, but I didn't answer because I was mad. I heard footsteps come up to my bedroom window, and I waited for her to knock on the window so I could yell that I told her not to come by, but she just walked off. She texted to say she tucked the $20 in the screen door, so I got up to grab it and there was nothing there. I told her it wasn't there and asked if it could have fallen out. Then I asked her why she walked to my window, and she hadn't. This meant whoever saw her leave the money had to be 50 feet or less from the door. It had been only three minutes tops from when she dropped it off and when I checked it, and the only place that could have been was in our backyard. It also means whoever walked up to my window knew my girlfriend was there to see me and knew which room was mine. A week later, we heard footsteps in the yard again. I did the same routine. Grabbed the gun, stood in the living room, then started with the lights. Then I had an idea. This person needs to think that they can be seen. So I started to flip the switch every time I heard a step. Once they noticed, they started running. So I ran to look out the peephole to see a big fella with wild hair running down the alley. Even though I didn't get a great look, the general outline looked like Steve. So I started looking for the emails he gave me. Like I said, I'm always on high alert and he raised concern. The second I noticed his full name was on the emails, I decided I was going to keep them. I get his last name and search his public record, 
Then I pulled up his most recent mugshot and asked my sister if she had seen this man before, and her face went ghost white. She said yes. He smelled like garbage and that made her anxious too. He came into her job at Subway a few times. She said she will never forget that creepy menacing smile he plastered on his face the second she told him her name, and the feeling of pure fear it gave her. She rides her bike to and from work, so I'm betting he followed her home. One thing became painfully clear. He didn't hurt my girlfriend when she left the money. He didn't touch my sister when she rode her bike home. This was about me. The second she told me this, I called the cops. I gave them the emails and told them everything I knew, down to the name of the cook I knew could describe his car. They found his car within a week. It was abandoned by the lake. It was full of trash, a few personal belongings, and pages and pages of his crazy thoughts slash intentions. There were hundreds of pages about me and what he thought he knew about me. My sister, a checklist of all the subways he checked to find her, what he learned from her, the layout of our house, my girlfriend's info, and the most fucked up, his very sexually charged plan to keep me alive while he cut me up and ate me. The plan was to break in, kill my sister, and wait for me to come home. Then, he was going to cut off a piece of me a day and make me watch while he ate it and jerked off. In less than 24 hours, the cops found his body in the lake. I had PTSD before this happened. So did my sister. And this event made it so much worse for us. My sister can't work either now, and we are both in the disability process. It literally has taken me six hours to write it all out but I decided it's a story worth telling. I'll never get over it if I keep avoiding it. And maybe, hopefully, it will help save someone else's life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like this podcast, please give it five stars on Spotify and or iTunes. If you want to give me some feedback or suggest a case, you can always go to the Google form that I have in the description below. Don't forget to tune in next Tuesday for another episode. And I hope you have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.